Had he not been a hundred other things, my next guest might have loved to have been a jazz musician. He's... He <laughs> well, listen to this. He's been heard, in fact, to play jazz trumpet in the manner of Armstrong. That's Vickers Armstrong and not Louis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure up. <laughs> Music's only one of his many talents. He's a poet, writer, humorist, comedian, actor, critic of all things bureaucratic and cruel, lover of all things joyous and absurd. <laughs> The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. 29. Three, two, one. Can't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got, like, my quota of tunes for the next ten years or album. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 35 Welcome back once again to January 7th, 1969. The Beatles have spent some time before and after lunch working on Maxwell's Silverhammer and appear to have enjoyed the experience. The mood has definitely improved since they took a break. We'll do the recap in a short while, but as is customary at this point, I have another podcast recommendation. If you're anything like me, you listen to a great many more podcasts than any other kind of media. One I discovered recently is called even the rich and in particular their series of documentaries on Marilyn Monroe. The storytelling and soundscapes are so engaging and evocative. You can get totally immersed in them. A really great podcast, check it out. A big thank you goes out to the wonderful listeners who left a tip on buymeacoffee.com. So to Matt, Simon, my chameleon days, Gillian and the two anonymous contributors, as well as the incredibly generous Stephen from a certain other much more successful podcast. A very heartfelt thank you to you guys. You are awesome. If you'd like to support the show and leave a tip, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash whatpod. As promised, here is a recap of episode 34. The Beatles return from the canteen and we hear somebody, presumably Paul, begin drumming on Ringo's kit. In the background, George is talking to Glyn about some technical aspects of recording. Ringo arrives and only half-jokingly tells Paul to leave the drums alone and get back on the piano. Kevin informs Ringo that Mal has managed to get hold of the hammer and anvil, as requested by Paul. It's probably this new development that leads them to continue rehearsing Maxwell. Kevin asks Ringo where he wants the anvil, but Ringo seems uninterested in playing this as well as drums. Ringo then breaks into an impromptu version of Maxwell's Silver Hammer, mostly making up his own words. The performance has just enough verve that it's surprising that they didn't consider the song as a vehicle for Ringo. Paul and George sing a little improvised scat vocal at the end. John hasn't returned yet, so George, who's still playing bass, leads Paul and Ringo through an instrumental version of the Jackie Lomax song, Speak To Me. Paul then recites the words to When I'm 64. There's an audible crackling on the recording, which we soon discover is Glyn John's testing connections to isolate the source of the noise. The three Beatles again start playing Speak To Me, George directing the drum part into something resembling what will be played on the recorded version of Get Back. As they run through Speak To Me, Paul is still reciting the words to When I'm 64, effectively creating a mashup of the two songs. Mal has now volunteered himself to play the hammer and anvil. He and Ringo trade beats across the soundstage. Paul then recites a monologue, seemingly improvised, 
about how it's not necessary to go to Kashmir with Maharishi to study meditation. Paul starts playing Oh Darling as John returns, perhaps to get his interest in rehearsing the song. John, George and Ringo play along. Attention is then shifted to rehearsing Maxwell's Silver Hammer. The first run through is a false start, a rare mistake from Ringo. It sounded like he was reminding Paul of the beat, but on further listening he's playing the chorus beat in the verse, and he quickly realises it. After some direction from George, who seems the most enthusiastic about this song, Mal hits the anvil right on cue. Yoko is heard for the first time today as she and John have a little light-hearted banter about their relationship. She's saying something isn't fair and he's joking, you can't win. John in the Andy Peebles interview in 1980 stated that Yoko couldn't believe that John still had his macho trip, as she put it, even insisting on reading the newspapers first before she could look at them. Yoko quickly put pay to these kinds of attitudes from John. Perhaps this is another example of her asserting herself in a light-hearted manner. Paul makes a strange comment about you two are like cartoons. It's not easy to fully understand what he means by that or who he's referring to. John and Yoko, George and Ringo, Michael and Tony, Glyn and George Martin. Though instinctively it feels like he's talking about John and Yoko. In the background George is once again guiding Ringo and Mal around the arrangement. You also hear Michael and Tony discuss what they want to film, camera angles etc. Paul works with John on the guitar part. And this splitting of duties seems like a much more efficient way of working. And here I need to add a correction. When Paul says, turn down and hit it harder, he's talking to John about his guitar sound and not to George about the bass. Paul calls for mics for John and George to whistle into. Paul is then heard communicating to Glyn over his mic to put more piano through the PA. Glyn now appears to be in a separate booth mixing the sound we are now hearing. Having got his guitar sound right, John plays a super fast ragtime version of Maxwell accompanied by George and Ringo, but Paul cuts this off with his piano at the correct tempo. George asks them all to run through the ending to practice Mal's anvil part. Mal takes a while to get the timing right on the ending. At this point, George asks if Ringo could play the anvil. Ringo declines, saying, the hammer is too heavy. Paul likes the idea of Mal being on stage with him and suggests dressing him up in character as Maxwell for the live show. Paul runs through the structure of the song with George as Glyn discusses with John the extra mics he's put on the instruments and amplifiers to get his recorded sound. John actually contributes ideas this time round. George asks whoever is producing me to fix his bass sound which he's not happy with. John adds a spoken introduction to the song. The next run through is more polished and tight sounding. George and John try to harmonise the chorus, but both think the song will need an audience to sing along. George and Mal think the words could be projected on the wall behind them. This is the first production idea from George so far. Paul is very insistent on how the whistling should sound, but John isn't taking it too seriously. Next, Paul works on the chorus harmonies with John and George, quibbling over the pronunciation of the word silver with George and repeating this over and over. Paul then returns to an older idea from Friday, the spooky sounding tag which is achieved by using the typical Beatle augmented chord. John likens his whistling to Roger Whittaker, but Paul still wants him to whistle the melody very simply, straight as he calls it. After a final run through, Paul is very happy with the progress so far. George can be heard teaching Mal to play more in time. Feeling rehearsals of this song are complete, John suggests they run through across the universe. And this is where we rejoin them. A quick recap of where we left off. John reassures Paul, we'll get it after a couple of weeks. John calls for them to do across the universe. Uh, 
tape cut. 63, slate 122, camera A. As the Beatles are changing instruments, Glyn says to Peter Sutton, do you want me to knock these out? It's fair to assume he means the now superfluous mics on things like the piano and the anvil. Michael is up for the idea of an audience sing-along, the first production idea from the Beatles themselves. John plays a chugging rhythm on guitar and sings what he can remember of Get Back, so that's stuck in his memory. John says to someone here, What are you doing? They reply with something which sounds like tinkering with your mic. To fill time, John starts playing an old Beatles favourite, a shot of rhythm and blues. As ever, he's word perfect on other people's songs. A Shot of Rhythm and Blues is another example of the Beatles dipping into the repertoire of Arthur Alexander. The song was written by Terry Thompson and Alexander's version was released in the UK in 1962 as the B-side of You Better Move On, where it very quickly entered the Beatles' repertoire. They weren't the only artists on the Mersey scene to play the song. Cilla Black, Sam T-Bird Jensen and Jerry and the Pacemakers all performed the song. It was also released as a single in the UK by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates the same year as Alexander's version. Though the Beatles never recorded a version of the song for EMI, they did perform it live for BBC Radio three times. Critic Robert Christgau called it one of the Beatles' greatest covers. being served. John wants a glass of milk. George wants a coffee with no milk. John then runs through a few lines of Baby I Don't Care by Elvis Presley. George finishes it but uses the wah-wah pedal for accompaniment. Baby I Don't Care is a song written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. It was recorded by Elvis Presley in two sessions on May the 3rd and May the 9th, 1957. It has the distinction of being one of the few recordings where Elvis played bass guitar. It was released on the EP to accompany Elvis's third motion picture, Jailhouse Rock, and is performed in the movie. The Beatles had great affection for this song. One notable version is the raucous performance captured during the sessions for 1968's eponymous White Album, in between takes of Helter Skelter. John wants to start rehearsing and starts across the universe as George is still fooling around with Baby I Don't Care. That squeaking is the wah-wah pedal that needs a drop of oil. How's it? What's the first line? Uh, Thought words were okay. John immediately hits the first obstacle, his memory for his own lyrics. Not good at the best of times, but this time 
he can't even recall the opening line. George reminds him of the line. Once again, John seems unsure of himself, almost embarrassed to direct rehearsals. It's hard at this distance to understand the reason for this. Is it because he's being filmed? Is it because Yoko is present? Or is it the narcotic influence of whatever he seemed to be high on this morning? One thing that these outside influences were not affecting, however, was John's memory for his own lyrics. Increasingly, as the Beatles moved away from and indeed became disillusioned with live performance, the need to memorise lyrics became less and less essential. Even the usually conscientious Paul couldn't remember the opening line to I'm Down during the televised Circus Krona concert in West Germany in 1966. But John always had a problem remembering his own lyrics. I don't think there's a single recording of a live performance of Help where he doesn't mess up the third verse. Even on the fateful day in 1957 that John and Paul first met as teenage boys, Paul remembers first hearing John seemingly improvising his own words to the songs the quarry men were performing. What has been lost, as the years have passed, is that this kind of willfully careless, almost punkish attitude to performance was one of the most appealing things about the Beatles. Not for them synchronised dance moves and rehearsed skits between songs, the Beatles shows were all about energy and non-conformity. The irreverence captured the zeitgeist of that era. I don't know about that intro where you start. Uh, it was a bit... So it was a bit crummy. John isn't convinced about the intro. This performance is similar to the recorded version. John, rhythm guitar, George Wawa, Ringo playing just a tom-tom. But Paul adds bass. Way across the universe. Oh, that was it. Across the universe. John forgets the rest of the vocals. Ringo changes drum pattern for the chorus. John is still waiting for the lyrics asked for yesterday. Interestingly, George says Jackie Lomax has a set of the words. The song doesn't appear in Jackie's discography, so it's not clear if he attempted the song for his album. We just sing it, if you remember which one does that. Yeah, I don't know which one it does that. I suppose it's the same, but... George trying to remind John of the structure of the song, notably the shorter opening lines on some verses. Here George is supporting John more than Paul. Mal tries to add some anvil to this track too. Glyn has now got a talk bank working from his booth and uses it to get Paul to test his mic. Paul? Paul? Yes? Scratch your vocal mic. Thank you very much. John is getting disheartened again about his own material. He took quite a lot of encouragement to finish Don't Let Me Down. Fast ones. You know, if, if I just wasn't so tired when I got in, 
it's just like that. I mean, if they're really the trouble about on. the slow ones, is they yeah, take the mood down. George offers his opinion, again, that the concept of the slower material might actually be a good concept. Here John explains his reasons for not bringing in more material. He feels too tired by the time he's got home. He ponders finishing Give Me Some Truth, but feels it's also similar to the others. Paul agrees that learning slower songs dampens the Beatles' enthusiasm, which we can already hear. Someone called Eric Brown brings John's lyrics from the office. I can't find out anything about him. If anyone knows his story, please let me know. In all the usual places. Eric has also ordered a tape that should arrive later. The rustling sound is John trying to attach his words to the mic stand. It sounds like Ringo has provided some sticky tape. John and George discuss what he didn't like about the version they recorded in 1968. George likes the recording. John didn't like the girls' voices on it. Paul asks, did it ever get to the wildlife? This being the World Wildlife Fund album, No One's Gonna Change Our World, which will finally appear later in the year. In 1969, His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh was called upon to write liner notes for a compilation album, an unusual duty admittedly, but the cause was a subject close to his heart and they read as follows. The meeting of the World Wildlife Fund was convened at Buckingham Palace on the 21st of December 1967. It was in the nature of a talk-in with the view to stimulating new ideas. Among those present were several people from the entertainment world, on whose behalf Spike Milligan suggested making a long-playing record, on which artists, composers, publishers and recording companies would waive all fees. This record is the result of that idea. Royalties for its sale will go towards funds dealing with rare animals in danger of extinction. This in itself makes this a unique record. I can do no more than wish it great success. That record was called No One's Gonna Change Our World. A charity record was a rare but not completely unique idea. As early as 1956, the Lord's Taverners released a 78 RPM disc which also contained tracks donated by popular artists of the time. Winifred Atwell, Lita Rosa, Dickie Valentine, etc. The beneficiary of those funds was the National Playing Fields Association. 
Perhaps His Royal Highness was being a little generous in attributing the idea for the record to Spike Milligan. Prince Philip had been the patron of the Lord Stavners since 1950, so was well aware of that 1956 disc and its follow-up the following year. But no matter who thought of the idea, it was Milligan who was tasked with securing various artist recordings for free. Coincidentally, in early 1968, as Milligan was working on the compilation, and presumably his contributions to it, the Beatles were working on a small batch of songs with a view to releasing one as a single, while they decamped to Rishikesh, India, until the spring. The four songs were Lady Madonna, The Inner Light, Hey Bulldog, and Across the Universe. As John alludes to in these Nagra recordings, he thought very highly of his song Across the Universe, but was dissatisfied with the recording. A long time was spent by the band on this one song, much more than on the other three. Two takes were recorded on the 3rd of February, and four more recorded on the 4th. To this final take, John added his vocal, although the tape had to be slowed down slightly to aid the singer. Infamously, in answer to a suggestion for some female backing vocals, Paul McCartney approached the group of Beatle fans waiting outside the studio and picked out two young women, 17-year-old Gaylene Pease and 16-year-old Lizzie Bravo. They were brought into the studio. Martin Benj, balance engineer at EMI, commented in Lewison's recording sessions book, They were so excited, they couldn't believe they'd actually been invited by Paul, not just inside the building, but into the studio itself to sing with the Beatles. Lizzie herself said, I still don't believe it happened. And Gaylene added, It was like a dream. The Beatles are so easy to get on with. Both Lizzie and Gaylene sang along to John's chorus, Nothing's Gonna Change Our World, an octave higher than he. George Martin commented, Considering the girls had never done any recording before, I think they were really great. The two girls left, presumably in a daze, but the Beatles continued working. Still unsure what else to add to the recording, a reduction mix was made and a backwards recording of bass and drums was added. They then recorded some experimental sound effects on a separate four-track tape. The first, 15 seconds of humming, listed on the tape box as Hums Wild. The second was of a guitar, and the third was a harp-like sound. A note on the tape box indicated that these were to be played backwards and added to Across the Universe. The effects were then dubbed onto the recording and a mono mix was made for John to take home. He was, however, still not satisfied. I was psychologically destroyed. Nobody was supporting me or helping me with it. But we would spend hours doing little detail cleaning on Paul's song. When it came to mind somehow with this atmosphere of looseness and casualness, let's try a few experiments would come over. It was subconscious sabotage, yeah. He will say that it doesn't exist, that I'm paranoid, but I'm not paranoid. It's the absolute truth. The Nagra recordings today show how John's lack of leadership takes the momentum out of these sessions. His comments about an atmosphere of looseness are relevant to what we can hear at Twickenham, but John is causing this. He almost seems to want Paul to maintain his producer's role for this song, in exactly the same way as he does his own. But Paul will naturally find it easier to have a creative vision for his own material than for someone else's. Back to 1968, when the Beatles reconvened on the 8th of February, the decision was made to wipe the backwards recordings and sound effects and start again from the basic track plus vocals. John tried adding Mellotron and George Martin added organ, but both these contributions were discarded. Next, John added wah-wah guitar, George played some maracas and Paul added piano. Then John, Paul and George gathered around a single mic to record some exquisite high harmonies. To top off the day's work, John re-recorded his lead vocal. As Jeff Emmerich notes, We recorded that vocal over and over again because John was unhappy with the job he was doing. It was a problematic vocal to do because of phrasing. There were too many words to sing, so many points at which he had to take breaths. Because of that, John wasn't satisfied he'd gotten the feeling into the words that he was looking for. And he was a bit upset about that. The song clearly meant a lot to him and he was frustrated because it hadn't come out the way he'd heard it in his head. Throughout the February 8th session, Leslie Price, photographer for the Beatles Monthly Book, was on hand to take some informal photos of the Beatles at work in the studio. There's John in his satin shirt and newly grown mutton chops. 
Paul dressing down in white shirt and sweater, George in floral shirt and embroidered waistcoat, Ringo in shirt tie and suit, his hair still dyed a kind of dark chocolate from his role as Manuel in the film Candy. Also present are Malevans, George Martin, and in a photograph printed in the April edition of Beatles Monthly, along with Jeff Emmerich at the controls, Leslie Price also captured on the bench to the right of the mixing desk, Spike Milligan smiling benignly, but seemingly detached. Jeff Emmerich again. The legendary comedian and ex-goon Spike Milligan, who was one of John's idols, happened to be at the session as a guest of George Martin's. He was so impressed with what he was hearing that he asked Lennon if the track in its current state could be used to help raise funds for a charity he was involved in. A distracted, aggrieved Lennon simply said, yeah, whatever. It's not clear if anything was set in stone with Milligan at this point, but when the Beatles reviewed their work so far, it was obvious to John that Across the Universe wasn't going to be the next single. In hindsight, the song did point the way the Beatles would be heading that spring in India and to my mind at least, would have been a more appropriate single, especially if the Beatles had been able to complete the course and return as spiritual leaders. In the end, Lady Madonna was chosen as the single, and it was coupled with George's The Inner Light on the B-side. Sometime after this bird song was added to the start and end of the mix of Across the Universe to fit in with the wildlife theme, presumably. By the April edition of the Beatles monthly book, Mal and Neil's column was confirming that Across the Universe was going to appear as a track on a special charity album. However, almost a year on, in January 1969, the special charity album had not materialised and so John felt able to attempt the song one more time, even though by this time he had moved on from Transcendental Meditation completely. As we can hear, he is still unable to lead the session and know what he wants. No One's Gonna Change Our World was eventually released on the 12th of December 1969, almost two years after the idea was first pitched. Across the Universe was the opening track. Other artists included Scylla Black, Rolf Harris, The Hollies, The Bee Gees, Lulu, Dave D, Dozy Beaky Mick and Titch, Cliff Richard, Bruce Forsyth and fellow goon and at that time president of the Lord's Taverners, Harry Seacombe. Despite the delay, Milligan was still able to release Across the Universe ahead of the Beatles themselves by several months, and the concept of a charity record would eventually inspire George Harrison to attempt a similar feat with his concert for Bangladesh. Tape cuts. Some time seems to have passed. This seems like a more polished performance. It's interrupted by Glyn talking to Paul. In the Peter Jackson documentary, you can see John's lyrics cover his mic, giving Glyn problems balancing the sound. He's trying to get a balance in there, and you've got the words on it. You've got the balance, yeah. Glyn. You're getting it all right, are you? Glyn tries to find John a music stand. John jokingly plays the song fast. George takes him seriously, stating that he likes the slower pace. John points out one of the song's fundamental flaws. He struggles to fit in the words and breathe while singing. John is looking for arrangement ideas. Maybe you could play all John seems to have an acetate copy of the song. He asks Michael if they have a record player, who in turn asks Mal. J 
John asks Ringo if he remembers what he played on the recording. Of course, Ringo does. Can you remember at all what you did On the drony bit you want just John doesn't think that will work in this live performance. Ringo offering suggestions for drums which he never appears to do on Paul's songs. This is much more collaborative. Meanwhile, Paul seems to be talking to Glyn. George offers to play organ. You see, organ, organ, the, even if I get groovy, I'll just know the chords and be able to change at the right time. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like giving me a trumpet, you know, I mean, really, I don't <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, to do the drum, well, should I try? I'll just play through it once, doing that. But you see, then it'd be better if you were doing a few fills with the band. <laughs> Well, maybe you could drone, because that's down. Would you have a or should I do one through? You will have just working out it. See if I'll know if I'm going to be able to do anything or not. George is concerned because he doesn't know the organ that well. He says you might as well give me a trumpet, which they all laugh at. John then says. He only really needs him to play the drone, the tambora part that's on the record. John starts on the wrong pickup of his guitar, but soon corrects it. When the new spool is loaded it catches another performance. This time Ringo is playing a straightforward rock drum pattern. But this exposes a problem. John uses odd meters to fit his words, meaning Ringo has to correct himself as the beat gets reversed. This is roll 64, camera A wild at the moment. Paul is involved in the performance, now playing bass and providing harmonies. You can just about hear the organ, but it's clearly not been mic'd. Paul perhaps mimicking the female voices on the record. Glyn is isolating the feed on the Lowry organ to get a balance. Oh, yeah, 
Paul makes a suggestion to sing less Nothing's Gonna Change My Worlds. Paul's suggestion is for some R's on the backing vocals. John agrees. His vocal part should be the line that moves, not the backing. George says something inaudible to John, but by John's response, we can tell that he would rather George go back to playing guitar. Although we don't hear them switch, it appears that John is now playing the organ, but he soon gives up. Sixty-four slate one twenty-six sink. Throughout this part, you can hear Eric Brown talking about publishing and the difficulties managing catalogues in different territories. This could refer to Northern Song's recent purchase of the Irving Mills catalogue of songs. More on this later. Paul tries the melody out on his out-of-tune bass and then improvises for a while.
John now appears to be getting a sound out of his guitar by slapping the strings. tries a finger-picking style he learned in India weeks after he'd written the song. gives up on this too. try a few different approaches but inspiration is lacking George and Ringo appear to have wandered off. Eric Brown informs them that Yellow Submarine has won the New York Critics Award. Paul and John seem rather unimpressed. What? Has it? So much for the New York Critics. Oh. Amongst the record-busting television audience for the Beatles' first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show was head of film and television for King Features, Al Brodax. Seeing the earning potential of the band, Brodax approached Brian Epstein with the idea of producing an animated series featuring fairly crude caricatures of the Beatles' hard days, night personas. Brodax had been successful at bringing revivals of some classic cartoons to the small screen. Crazy Cat, Cool McCool, Beetle Bailey, Snuffy Smith and Casper the Friendly Ghost. However, his fast-paced production process, coupled with limited animation style due to low budgets, led to widespread criticism when he acquired the rights from Paramount to produce some very poor quality Popeye cartoons. 39 episodes of the Beatles cartoon were aired starting on September 25th, 1965. And despite their obvious low budget, they were very successful. The Beatles themselves were quickly tired of their movie roles, becoming disillusioned with the two-dimensional versions of themselves they were asked to play. A number of film projects were considered after help in 1965, but none met with the Beatles' approval, and their own attempt at writing and producing a made-for-TV film, 1967's Magical Mystery Tour, was savaged by the press. 
Although the announcement that their next cinematic release would be animated was made in June 1967 ahead of the Mystery Tour project, even so the Beatles did not take the project seriously, only really viewing it as a convenient way of fulfilling their three-picture deal with United Artists. It is rumoured that Brodax's budget of $1 million was only half of the sum advanced to the band by UA. But Brodax was used to tight schedules and shoestring budgets. With only 11 months to complete the film, production had to start without a finished script or a storyboard in place. That's why the film is episodic, composed of many short sections in varying artistic styles. Over 200 artists worked round the clock to create the movie under the pioneering art director Heinz Edelman. John Lennon, however, was unimpressed. When asked about the creative team behind the film, he responded, Gross animals, apart from the guy who drew the painting, referring to Edelman, lifting all the ideas for the movie from out of our heads and not giving us any credit. George Martin added, Well, the Beatles were against the idea from the beginning. They clearly thought it was going to be yet another rip-off, like the television series, and wanted nothing to do with it. They loathed the idea of cartoon characters because they had visions of Brodax's Popeye, all this kind of crude animation. George Harrison was more enigmatic. The thing I like most about the movie is that we didn't really have anything to do with it. Well, that is apart from United Artists insisting on at least a live-action cameo by the band, which they dutifully filmed on the 25th of January 1968. When they did visit the studio, the animators remember them being standoffish and condescending. Lennon in particular was irritated by some of the artists for the film showing up to recording sessions to observe the Beatles in action. Annoyed at having to produce new music for the animators, John supposedly said, Nothing's too good for the film, so that's what we'll give them. Nothing. Well, not quite nothing, but all the songs slated for the Yellow Submarine film were rejects from other projects. Only a Northern song hadn't made the cut for Sgt. Pepper. It's All Too Much was rejected from Magical Mystery Tour. Hey Bulldog was a leftover track from the February 1968 singles sessions. As for Paul's Altogether Now, this was derived from a children's song he had written for his younger relatives called Jumping Around the Room. The Beatles, of course, realised much too late that the movie was in fact a classic and would go on to be highly influential. Both John and Paul subsequently expressed disappointment that they weren't more involved. However, from this conversation at Twickenham, it's clear that they're still expressing disdain for the film and its instigator, Al Brodax. Unenthused by Across the Universe, John tries out A Case of the Blues before dropping that in favour of Give Me Some Truth, which he calls Hypocrites. Here he's extending an olive branch to Paul to help him finish the song. We find out here that the verse is written by John and the bridge by Paul. Do you know the other bits? My bits, I don't. Words are flowing out Sick and tired of hearing I'm sick and tired of rearing lines By seasick, narrow-minded shorts Hypocrite All I want is the truth We should change the heads Tell me some truth Once again, Johnny's disheartened. So that's just as exciting as the other one.
Uh, it was too too many changes actually to uh, none of that just leaving your hands on it. Ringo jokes, if it's in C and it's a 12 bar, a reference to his limited ability on keyboards, in response to George's suggestion that he sing and play piano. This segment appears in the Let It Be film. I wish we could start hearing the tapes now, like, like do it and then hear what it is. Is it just because we don't feel like it or is it, does the guitar sound all right really? Should we just try it? We'll just have less of those, nothing's going to change my... Just have one each time, two at the end. Johnny's repeating Paul's earlier suggestion regarding how many times they sing, nothing's going to change my world. Paul looking for a harmony line is quite distracting. John voicing his frustration here. Because I'm down, says John. It's not clear if this is a drug reference. John was uncommunicative this morning, lively before lunch, and now he seems lethargic. Ringo experiments with the drums in the third verse. Almost a solo from John, but once again it quickly loses its way. John wants a drone in the break. George tries to oblige with, you guessed it, the wah-wah pedal. Got your tambour then? offers George the intro and then has to teach it to him. Sixty-six set list off the side of his bass. Rock and roll music. She's a woman. If I need I feel fine.
George introduces the song, but the tempo is way too slow and John realises it. Paul only half-jokingly tells John to take control of the rehearsal. Clearly, the momentum gained during Maxwell has been lost here. As a response, and possibly inspired by Paul's set list, John kicks off a version of rock and roll music and the Beatles all join in. And that is where we'll leave them until next time. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod. That's W-O-D-P-O-D. You can also interact with me on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, plus my Gmail, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please like and subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for listening and bye for now.